Would you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to John's Gospel? Uh, We're continuing our time in John's Gospel this morning. We're going to be in chapter 4, and we're going to look at just four verses this morning. In John chapter 4, verses 27 through 30. Um, I'm grateful that God has blessed us with so many musicians and uh, uh, Mark, who leads week in and week out for us. Um, And if you can't get enough of the worship here on Sunday morning, um, you have another opportunity this week uh, to to participate in worshiping our our Lord. Uh, This week, the worship team is going to be playing at the Downtown Arts Market on, um, on Thursday. I believe that's the 22nd of August. Um, I don't know quite what the time slot is, um, but if uh, I'm pretty sure that it's most of the time. So if you show up to the downtown art market that I think starts at 6, I'm not sure. Mark, where are you? 5.30. 5.30 is when that starts, and then uh, and it goes till 8.30. Uh, you, can, you can find the worship team there um, this week. Also, um, members, I want to make mention of this before we dive into our text this morning. Remember, next Monday, a week from tomorrow, is our, our next members meeting. We're going to eat together. Um, uh, uh, our family meeting will include an element of eating together at 530. Um, we're going to grill out. If the weather's nice, if it's not a million degrees out, we're going to eat in the parking lot. If it is, then we'll eat in the basement, which always remains cool. And, uh, and then we'll have our meeting here together at 630. There will be child care. Um, at 6.30, so come as a whole family, eat together as a whole family, eat with your Buffalo City Church family, and then, and then drop your kids off, and we'll be talking about some vision things for the future, um, hopefully for the fall and the upcoming, the upcoming year. We're like a long ways into 2021, which doesn't quite feel possible, but we're going we're gonna to focus on a handful of vision-related items uh, that night. So members, uh, make sure that your calendar is marked, 5.30 dinner, 6.30 for our meeting. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. When was the, when was the last time you were truly astonished by something? I, I think the, the, the idea of standing in wonder of something or being astonished of something is something that has kind of gone away in our world a little bit. For many reasons, but one of them just being that we can like view or think about global events sort of in real time as they're happening. Things around our world are happening and we have access to the things that are going on just because of the nature of, say, the internet, uh, the way that our media works. We, we have 24-hour m- news channels and, and things like this. And we, can, we can know about what's happening on the other side of the world within just a few seconds, really. And so when we have this wide, uh, when this breadth of understanding of the things that are going on in our world at all times, uh, what that amounts to is sometimes being unastonished by what's happening right in front of us in any, any given moment. Another reason is we, we watch movies 
um, and, and see and, and consume uh, media and entertainment that ha- has effects that are incredibly lifelike, that are incredibly realistic. And, and we as people sometimes look at those things and it desensitizes it, us to the astonishment and amazement and the wonder of the world around us that's right in front of, right in front of our face. But, but I think that one thing that still genuinely surprises us, one thing that genuinely catches our attention as people, is when a person changes. When a person changes, when you've known a, an individual for a very long time in your life, and they've been part of your life for a very long time, and then that person somehow, some way, turns a corner and almost becomes a different person. That is astonishing to us. We don't, we don't expect it most times. And when it does happen, oftentimes we're skeptical. Oftentimes we think, did they really change? Is there something really going on in this individual? Can I trust that this change has taken place in this person? You know of people in your life who you don't think could change. <laughs> you know of people who you think they are who they are, it's what it is, and I'm moving on, right? You think to yourself, uh, I don't, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a coworker, maybe, maybe you know who I'm talking about in your world, who you think to yourself, there's no changing this person. There's no way that this person can be changed. Last week we explored uh, verses 7 through 26 in John chapter 4. And these verses show us, or we see very clearly, this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And we talked about all of the disadvantages that this woman had culturally. And we talked about all of the sin that she repeatedly engaged in over and over and over again. And yet Jesus, a merciful Savior, stood in front of her and continued to extend to her the offer of himself. Over and over and over again. Jesus offered himself to her. But, but she, according to the culture, was a terrible candidate to receive what Jesus was offering. The world around her would not have thought, this, this woman is someone who should be or will be the recipient of Jesus' offering of himself. She'd become a societal outcast. Even to a culture, the Samaritan culture, that didn't really care about morality in any way, shape, or form, as she had become the poster child for immorality. Again, she had a bunch of cultural disadvantages in the fact that she was a Samaritan, that she was a woman. But Jesus is a merciful Savior who offers himself to miserable sinners. If you met this woman, But if you put yourself in this time, in this place, and you were going to the well, and you stopped at Jacob's well, and you met the Samaritan woman, what what would you think? What would you think? And sometimes those things don't necessarily translate for us, those cultural disadvantages we talked about. But but, uh, what they do is point out to us something inside of us when we meet someone who seems to be far from God. We begin to think ourselves, can this person really change? Is there true change possible in this life's person or in this person's lives? And how can I, as an individual, uh, even begin to think that God would extend to this person salvation? 
If you went to the corner bar tonight and you found a, a, a woman drinking in the corner, five-time divorcee, would you think to yourself, yeah, Jesus is going to be talking to her at the grocery store tomorrow? Would you think that? I think in our culture, we think to ourselves, no way. There is no way that Jesus would take time in the grocery store, in the dairy section, to stop and have a conversation with this woman. And yet, that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. These four short short verses are a good place for us to meditate. And that's why we're just taking these four this morning. They offer us a corrective for the way that we think about Jesus, for the way that we think about the way he engages, and then they offer us hope. For ourselves, yes, we saw that last week. There is no position that you can find yourself in in this world where Jesus' offer of salvation, where his offer of himself isn't extended to you. It offers hope for yourself, but also for others. If you're in Christ this morning and you are praying for an individual, if you're thinking to yourself, I need to know that this person can be, this is, that can be in Christ also, this is the place to go. But here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know from this text. Jesus doesn't do it the way that we expect. Jesus doesn't do it the way that we would expect. Oftentimes when we look at someone who, in our lives who is far from God, we think to the, ourselves, we've got to clean up a bit. We've got to clean up and, and get, get some things right, and maybe then there will be enough uh, margin in their lives for them to see the truth of the gospel and to respond to it in repentance and faith. But that doesn't happen. That's not what happens here. Jesus approaches this woman and offers himself to her repeatedly, despite all of her cultural disadvantages, her sin, and even her unbelief. So the bottom line, again, is this. Jesus is not going to do things the way that we expect. And we should expect that throughout the rest of this gospel. If we haven't already seen it, we should expect this throughout the rest of this gospel. That Jesus isn't going to approach things the way that we would approach them. So the first thing that I want you to see is uh, the first thing that highlights the way that Jesus chooses to do things and the way that he chooses to do things differently than the way that we would in our worldly wisdom is just in the disciples' perspective. In the disciples' perspective, mainly in their surprise. They act surprised when they walk up to Jesus and see him talking to a woman of Samaria. For, for one, because back in verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, but they marvel because they just see this woman and Jesus interacting with her. So where we are when we get to verse 27 is that Jesus said to this woman, uh, he had just told her that he's the Messiah. He had just said to her and revealed to an unlikely candidate, by the way, that, she, that he is the Messiah and that she is speaking now to the one who has come to redeem a people. And then the disciples show up. Verse 8, back in, in earlier in the chapter, says that they had gone into the city to buy some food. So they were apart from Jesus for the whole interaction. So they show up. Uh, they marvel, the text says. They marvel or are surprised or astonished that, this, that Jesus was talking to a woman. 
And again, men and women would not normally have had conversations together in, uh, in a similar place, uh, in, out in public. Their interactions uh, would have been very limited if any interactions would be happening at all. Uh, then we learn also that despite marveling, despite marveling at what, what happens here, um, they don't say anything. They, they, it says, the text says, they, no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So it's just verse 27, we learn about the disciples marveling. And I think that there are a few clues here that tell us why they marvel. One, because she's a woman. But two, um, let's think about that. Why would that have been a big deal? Um, Why wouldn't, why shouldn't that have happened in this instance in particular? Why would it be astonishing to them? on one hand, it was surprising because she was a woman, but on the other hand, I think maybe what was more surprising to the disciples in their perspective is that is who Jesus is. Jesus is a teacher. He was a rabbi. And so what the rabbi would do is he would spend time with people who were educated, who were learned, who, who had a lot going for them. Someone like the person we met in chapter 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He kept the law. He was he was a uh, he was a uh, he was a good Jew. But what the disciples didn't really consider is that Jesus, or why Jesus would spend time talking to a woman. Why this Samaritan woman? Jesus had a message to get out. He had something to to advance right? He came into the world. He was the light of the world. He was the, the light of the world. And he clearly puts on display for men and women uh, the, the hope of redemption that they had. That's the message that he communicates in his person and in his ministry. Someone like Nicodemus could take that, take that message, and through his connections in society, have a big impact on the world around him. But this Samaritan woman, really? From the disciples' perspective, she's not going to take the message anywhere. Her connections in her community are all bad. She's been labeled as a societal outcast. She's been labeled as someone who does not have much going for her at all, if anything. Now, we see at the end of this passage that that isn't true. But the reality is that the disciples are thinking along these lines. How is this woman who cannot make any cultural impact whatsoever, why would Jesus even spend time, waste his time speaking to her? Say you want to start a business. And you want people to learn about your exciting new idea for a business. You, what you don't do is head down to uh, an assisted care facility and start speaking to people who have dementia. And if you want investors to invest in your business, what you don't do is, uh, is head to the homeless shelter and talk to men who are thinking about, thinking about uh, just getting a hot meal and possibly a bed for the night. 
when you want to get your message out, you find the movers and shakers, right? You find the people with the financial resources. You find the people who are well connected. This is why the disciples marvel. Because that's not at all what Jesus does. That's not at all what Jesus does. He has the most important message to ever be communicated contained within his person and about where he's going to go over the course of the next couple of years to the cross. All of that is contained within Jesus and that's his direction in life and he stops at the well and has a conversation with a woman who from the world's perspective can do nothing to advance the message. This is why they marveled. He was chatting it up with someone who seemed to have no earthly ability to move that message out into the world. And they, they don't even know half of her problems. They just see a woman. They don't know that she's a Samaritan, although they probably could guess based on where they were. But the text doesn't say that. They, they don't know that she was a Samaritan. Um, they didn't know that she was a serial adulterer, breaking the law over and over again. They didn't know that any of the conversation that Jesus just had with her, because they just showed up, they didn't know about her unbelief and her avoidance of sin and all of the things that she does throughout the conversation and earlier in the chapter. If the disciples knew all her problems, they would have even been less inclined to think that Jesus had the, should have been giving her the time of day. They, even would have been, they would have been even more surprised to find Jesus talking to her. This woman had nothing and was nothing. She was a miserable sinner. And yet the hope here is found in this, that Jesus did speak to her. He did speak to her. Now here's, here's the rub of all of this, because the effect of the conversation was supernatural. The effect of the conversation was supernatural, where the disciples expected this woman had no ability to take the the message that Jesus was even communicating to her, the offer of living water, what Jesus told her and said to her uh, throughout the conversation, when the disciples looked at her and said, this woman has no ability to, to get this out there. This, this woman would actually have an incredible impact. An incredible impact. And that's the supernatural dynamic of the message, the supernatural dynamic of what happens here. Because quickly we find out that Jesus' message isn't bound by conventions. It's not, it's not bound and intended exclusively or even at all for the strong and the rich and the powerful according to the world. Jesus came to show the power of God to save sinners and that was extended to everyone. Not just to those who have their lives in order. Not just to those who seem to have it all together on the surface or those who are financially stable or those who have a family that's intact or those who seem to be doing the right thing. Those who put their nose to the grindstone and work hard. Jesus didn't just come to 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 offer the free gift of salvation to men and women who are doing the right thing at all points in time. Jesus came to offer the free gift of salvation, not to the strong and the rich and the powerful, but to everyone. 
even those who are least likely in the world's eyes to receive it. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. And I can't think of a better summary of this idea. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus shows up to communicate who he is and offer himself to this woman, this wretched, miserable sinner, so that there would be no mistaking that the one who boasts should boast in the Lord. Jesus didn't choose to communicate truth about salvation to the Samaritan and the woman at the well because of something great within her. There wasn't something great within her. We've established that. That's been established clearly by the, the Apostle John. She was a messed up, law-breaking sinner careening towards an eternity in hell apart from God. That's where she was when Jesus showed up at the well. And Jesus chose to communicate the truth about himself. He chose to communicate the truth about living water to this woman to show the power of God to save sinners. God's intent in saving sinners to put his power on display and so that God would get the glory. And that makes the Samaritan woman not the, the most unlikely candidate, but the perfect candidate for Jesus to stop and speak to. Because when the Samaritan woman comes to saving faith, we realize that it wasn't her own efforts that brought it about. It could only been brought about by God, and her life could only be transformed because of what he does. So that's the next thing I want you to see here in verses 28 and 29. The Samaritan woman's response. How does she respond? In verse 28, there are two things that she does. One, she leaves her water jar, and two, she went away into the town to tell people. The transformation has happened. She is fully convinced of what Jesus has said to her. She is fully convinced. And so what she does, two things. Transformation is evidenced in two ways. One, she leaves the water jar. Now, that's a simple detail, and we might be tempted just to gloss over it, but it's important. It's simple, but it's important. What she came to the well with is not what she left with. What this woman came to the well with is not what she left with in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense. She came to the well a sinner. She came to the well a Samaritan woman. She came with years of failure and hurt and sinfulness and shame. She left a different person. She left knowing that the meeting she just had now defined her. She came bearing a burden. 
and she left free of it. She came seeking water for the day's thirst, and she left never to be thirsty again. She leaves the water jar. She came, what she came to the well with is not what she left with. And the second way we see the transformation evidenced is by the fact that she goes to tell others. She goes immediately to tell other people. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. She didn't just bump into so-and-so at, the, at Jacob's well. Who cares? Like, how many times do you bump into somebody at the grocery store, and then like six or seven days later, you say, oh, oh, I bumped into so-and-so. You tell your spouse, right? Oh, I bumped into this person. You're like, oh, that's great. How are they doing? They're fine. Right? Like, that's how that conversation goes. What, what she does is immediately the most important thing that she can think of just happened to her, and she goes to tell others about it. She met someone who knew far more than she expected and someone who claimed to be far more than she had ever met. These two things, the fact that she leaves the water jar and the fact that she goes and tells others are evidence that what Jesus said to this woman has taken hold of her. It's gripped her. It's changed her. It's transformed her. And this is what's astonishing about this text. She didn't say, you know what, thanks for the offer, let me think about it. That seems like a possibility. Maybe, maybe, that'll be, maybe that's something I'll, I'll, I'll do later. The same, I think, is true for us. When we hear the truth about Jesus, and when we genuinely believe, we leave all else behind, And we go and tell others. Earlier I mentioned the supernatural dynamic that's in play in her going and having a major impact in what Jesus said, despite being, again, uh, someone who wouldn't seem to be able to have any impact at all. There's a supernatural dynamic in play because when she goes in verse 29 and says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Verse 30 tells us, they didn't say, get away from us. We don't believe you. You are not credible in the least. Yeah, maybe we'll check that out later. Verse 30 says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Something more was going on here. A woman's witness, again, a woman in general, in this day and age would not have been taken seriously. Her witness would have not been thought to be credible. And especially this woman, she had problems. She had lots of them, and everybody knew about all of them. But her witness still draws people out. Not because she was credible, but because the immediate evidence suggested further investigation and that it was needed. And also, the more important element here is that the Holy Spirit used what was an incredible testimony to draw others to Jesus. 
I think that these four simple verses have the ability to change everything for us. If we think about what really happens here in these four verses, these have the ability to change so much for us in our lives. Because what Jesus does is he turns everything upside down. In this conversation, he turns everything we thought about the Messiah and the way that he would come and the way that he would offer salvation and the way that he would offer redemption, he turns it all upside down. And we're going to see that escalate all the way to the cross because which king would die for his people? Which king would come and and sacrifice himself so that others might live? Jesus is turning things upside down. So what about you? Has Jesus called you to follow him? If you say yes, that's true of me. You've heard the call to follow him. Then we can immediately understand that based on the witness and the testimony and the picture of the Samaritan woman that we see here in John chapter 4, Um, we can see that there are evidences of those who have been called to follow Jesus and who are in Christ. So then we need to ask ourselves some questions, similar questions. The first question is this. Have you left the water jar? Now, like I said before, there's this dynamic or this component that's contained here that, that we need to understand that this woman left the well with less physically than she came with and less spiritually than she came with. She came with this burden of sin and she leaves free from it. She came with this water jar and she leaves without it. But there are many things in our lives that we are clinging closely to. Maybe it's the guilt and shame of sin, but maybe it's just something else. Jesus is very clear throughout all of the Gospels that we must be willing to leave everything in our lives in order to follow him. And so the question that comes, as we see from the Samaritan woman, is have you left everything to follow Jesus? Or are you really unwilling to leave everything to follow him? Jesus says there are lots of things that people are unwilling to leave, like money, That's the number one thing he talks about, money and possession. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, spoke to a rich young man, and the man had kept the law, and he says, what do I need to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law, and he names several of the Ten Commandments. And then the the young man says that, I've done that. What more do I need then? And Jesus says, you lack one thing. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And then immediately in verse 22, Mark writes, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possession. He was unwilling to leave what he had in this life to follow Jesus. is Is that you? We live in an incredibly affluent society. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't really have all that much. But again, by the world standards, we are an incredibly affluent society. Are you prepared to leave 
everything that you've accumulated in the way of possessions and worldly wealth to follow Jesus? Do do you uh, enjoy a standard of living that you're unwilling to give up? Could you conceive of living in a smaller house or renting? Do, Do you have a number that you insist on maintaining in your bank account? If Jesus said this to you, would you, like the rich young man, turn away and walk the other way, sorrowful, for you have great possession? Have you left the water jar? Or maybe it's family. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We, we like to say things, especially in our culture, despite the, de- the, the degradation of the family unit in our, in our culture, we also like to say things like family first. And a lot of our media, a lot of our kids' movies and things like that are all about the family, no matter how polluted and perverted it is. But the reality is that when we look at, uh, when we look at say, and we say something like, family first, that just betrays the fact that, that we don't think Jesus is first. And he said, don't take me so literally, that's not what I mean. But the question that flows out of that is, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? In light of your family and what you perceive to be the perfect situation and scenario, is Jesus enough? Because Jesus' words here about family are very radical. It's very Radical. You got to leave the water jar. You you want to know how to mess up your relationship with your kids or with your parents or with your spouse? If you want to know how to mess it up, here's the way. Value them more than Jesus. Value them more than Jesus. Put them above him or put them on the same tier as him. It's really that simple. Do you want to know how to actually love your family? Husbands, do you want to know how to love your wife? Dads, do you want to know how to love your kids? Moms, do you want to know how to love your kids? Grandparents, do you want to know how to love your grandchildren? Order your life according to the Bible, not according to the culture. A family-first mindset is actually a fast track to destroying your family relationship. Because Jesus needs to be first. (laughs) Seek first the kingdom of heaven. All of these things will be added to you. Leave the water jar and make Jesus first. I could go on here, but you're like, you're okay, that's fine. But think to yourself this morning, what things are you clinging so closely to that if Jesus calls you to walk away from them, he is calling you to walk away. (laughs) But if Jesus called you like he calls to the rich young man, like he calls out to the Samaritan woman, if he called you to walk away in that way, would you do it? Seriously, ask yourself this question. Seriously. You will quickly find the idols in your life. You will quickly find the fears and the anxieties that you have. So that's the first question. Have you left the water jar? The second question is this. Do you desire to tell others about Jesus? 
The, the Samaritan woman couldn't help but tell others about Jesus. She's clearly excited. Could this be the Messiah, she says? When was the last time you actively told someone about Jesus Christ? When was the last time you told someone that Jesus is the Christ? That Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him? That in him their sins could be forgiven and that they could spend an eternity with God. The woman says, he told me everything I did. You, you can't hide from Jesus. No one in your life can. The woman couldn't hide her sin. Jesus pointed it out quite quickly. And then Jesus, what he does at the end of this gospel, is he takes that sin upon himself. He takes it upon himself. He redeems her. He frees her. He forgives her. I think the primary reason we don't tell others about Jesus isn't because we're afraid of losing a friendship or isn't because we're afraid of struggling or thinking that we can't say the right words. I think the primary reason we fail to tell others about Jesus in the way that the Samaritan woman does here is because we don't really see what he's done for us. It's because we don't take time to meditate on the truth of the gospel. Do we really, do, do, do you, do, do we really see the infinite debt of sin? That was ours. That was, that was ours because of our sinful nature and because of our sinful decision. Like the Samaritan woman, do we understand that we couldn't end the cycle of sin in our lives on our own? Because when we begin to see clearly just how much we owed and how much Jesus paid, that generates a sense of desire to tell others and want to see others in our lives know the same forgiveness that we've experienced. If we're always excusing our sin, though, if we're always like, it's not really that big a deal. Like, yeah, I popped off at my kids and my spouse this morning. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, we, stro we, we, went on, uh, we went on vacation this last week, and, and then sometimes there's some pressure cooker moments when you're in the car for 12 hours with some kids, when six of them in particular. And there's a lot of, like, repentance that needed to happen after that trip. But if we're unwilling to see that the, the heinousness of even those simple things that we might just, we might just pass off as, they're not really that big a deal. If we're always excusing it, if we're always excusing the sin of others, why would anyone need to hear about Jesus? The final thing I'll ask in conclusion that we're going to approach the Lord's table this morning together as a congregation. This goes along with telling others about Jesus. I want you to ask yourself this week, are you genuinely, are you genuinely surprised when Jesus changes a life? Are you... Are you genuinely surprised? Are you skeptical that he can? You know, again, I asked at the beginning, you know the people in your life that you don't think Jesus can change. The woman at the well was not the prime candidate, it would seem like, from our perspective and from the disciples' perspective. But it is God's good pleasure to move miserable sinners from death to life. Because when it's clear when it's clear that they could not do it themselves, there is no doubt who gets the glory. 
There's no doubt who gets the glory. It's not you, it's not me, but it's the God of the universe who lovingly sacrificed his own son to bring them back to himself. So ask yourself the question, who have I written off? Who have I written off in my life? Who have you turned the cold shoulder to? Maybe you've shared the gospel with them many times. Maybe you've never shared the gospel with them, but maybe you've shared the gospel with them many times, and they've rejected you time and time again. Who do you know that's steeped in such immorality and is so hostile to God that you think living water wouldn't be offered to them? I think if you reflect this week, you'll find those who you think it would be a waste of time to talk to about Jesus. But we should look at Jesus' example here and understand it's not a waste of time. He took time to speak to this Samaritan woman. God can change even the most corrupt, godless person. And friends, he's calling us to bring the message of reconciliation to them. The message that comes in Christ. And the call to us this morning in order to do that is to believe that God has paid for in Christ an infinite debt of sin on our behalf and that same offer is extended to them. So right now we're going to approach the Lord's table together. and We're going to celebrate the the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. We're going to together take the bread and receive the bread, the broken body. We're going to drink the juice, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf in order that we might be made whole and complete so that we would be forgiven and the righteousness of Christ would be given to us. This is for followers of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know what it means to follow Jesus, would you just take this as an opportunity to reflect on what's been said here? Um, But if you are in Christ, go ahead, by all means, participate together with us here this morning. Parents, I know there are many kids in here this morning. Uh, We leave it to you to make a determination if they've made a credible profession of faith. If your kids have done that, invite them to participate together in the Lord's table with you. They haven't, again, use this as an opportunity to share the good news of who Jesus is with them later over lunch or in the car ride, in the car ride home. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you're prepared in your heart, the worship team is going to come and play. When you're prepared in your heart, come approach the table, uh, take the element, grab the elements, and you can head back to your seat and receive them when you are prepared. Let me pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you for the the truth that there is no one who is so far from God that the free gift of salvation is not offered to them in this life. God, would we not be astonished? Would we not be, uh, would we not be, would we not marvel at the reality that you offer to miserable sinners salvation in Christ Jesus. God, as we approach the table this morning, would you generate in us as a body, would you bring about unity? God, would we discern the men and women on our right and our left, even as we examine our own hearts? Would we see how 
in this moment, you are establishing unity among your people and how your people are being built up so that we might take the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us, to the people who we think or may be tempted to believe are far from you and will not or could not experience the transformation uh, that comes through Jesus Christ. God, would you help our unbelief this morning as we approach the table? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.